Hello and welcome to another episode of Monkey Business, the podcast and if you're watching this on uh, YouTube, clearly also the video recording, which uh, delves into the mindset of change makers, movers, shakers, leaders to really understand what makes them tick to how they quieten their monkey minds, to how they become kings and queens of their own jungles. And I'm delighted to be joined today by best-selling novelist Millie Johnson. Hello, Millie. Hello. Hello. Lovely to be here. Lovely to see you again. Yes. And I'm going to um, reprise my introduction. Uh, I was at the Boston Book Festival and I had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing uh, Millie, which is why I thought I want her on my podcast and I'm delighted she's here. Millie Johnson loves red lipstick, a full English, tiramisu, Howarth on a foggy day looking at the Bronte Parsonage, Cats and Cat Rescue, Greek mythology, her Parker pen from her dad, Helen Fielding. Proud to be the winner of the Romantic Comedy of the Year Award with It's Raining Men. And now your new book, which is about to come out, and I see it very beautifully strategically placed behind you, Melly. Is it out now, Woman it's in the Middle? It, it's, it's, uh, day, it came out last Thursday, so it's a week old today. Brilliant. So we will get to that. But I... The reason I super connected with you, not just because I love literature, but actually probably about the woman in the middle and about the fact that looking at your books, looking at your blogs, your writings, your newspaper columns, you are brilliant at putting your finger on the pulse. You are brilliant at looking at society and kind of going, oh, I don't think maybe from that person's perspective, we've really had that explored, hence woman in the middle, which we'll come to, the zeitgeist, as they call it. What would you say gives you that thinking ability, that ability to spot those gaps, shall we say, in the market, Millie? Um, Once upon a time, um, someone stopped me at a a book signing and uh, peered at me through her glasses and said, oh, aren't you ordinary? (laughs) and and I I know what she meant and she just and it was the loveliest compliment because I think if you'd have gone to Barbara Cartland you would have felt a barrier there and and I didn't have that barrier there and 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 that sums it up I'm just a very ordinary woman and and I I see the world as an ordinary woman as a as a, a woman with kids and parents um negotiating the world as it is uh and and it allows you I think to see through some of the the BS and whatever that politicians say and and councils say and you just see the world um as it is for instance when I was writing my column I think that the leader of the council because I'd had a bit of a go at the the bin collections presumed that I was on a mission to become a councillor um and I said I'm not I'm just a woman with a bin problem and I've I've always just had that orderiness orderliness about me that it's it's just someone going through life um seeing things listening to things I'm very observant I've always liked the sort of humor the observant sort of humor uh, where you think you're the only person doing that and then someone like Peter Kay brings it up and you think oh my god that everybody's laughing millions of people get into a taxi and say how long have you got left? Have you only just started? You think that's just you? Um, and I've I've always just had, and I, I 
I would like to say it's a gift because it felt like a very ordinary gift of just observing people and gathering all that information and putting it into my books. I wanted to um, read about women my age from the North at a time when most of the books on the market were the chick-lit phenomenon. Uh, the stories were about 20-something women working in PR, living in flats in London, and that meant nothing to me. And I wanted to write something that there were plenty of women like me out there that felt was relatable. Um, I know you'll probably touch on this, but I was a greetings card writer for many years, um, and that honed my skill to be able to pick up on what was out there in the market, what people might funny, the new things when iPods came out, when iPads came out. We leapt on them because it was something new to talk about. And people would always buy greetings cards because they were relatable. They're not necessarily the funniest jokes. Mm. Your father or husband is a Man U supporter and you found a, a card with a Man U joke on it. It doesn't matter how funny the card was, you'd buy it because it was relatable. And that relatability has been a key thing for me and, and any career success that I've had. I would say, having gone into a greetings card shop recently to buy a card for a certain member of my family who isn't the easiest person to buy for, uh, I was really disappointed, actually. There seems to be a lag at the moment, from what I can see, between what is kind of the zeitgeist, the thing of the moment. And, you know, if you if you look on social media, the memes are all going round. You know, whatever the memes are about... Biden or whoever you want, you know, there's stuff going around. And the, and the greetings card industry seems a bit behind. But I think you worked for a small company, didn't you? Yes, I worked for a small company so that if um, Victoria Beckham had a child, the next morning there would be a, a card out there with that child's name on it. Whereas a lot of the bigger companies would launch a card uh, sort of a Mother's Day card, they'd launch it, they'd, they'd talk, they'd, they'd design it at Christmas, then they'd do focus groups about it. And it was 18 months from when the card was thought to when it went out into the market, in which case exactly. it's gone. So the smaller firms that I worked for, they were, they were on it. They were on it like a car bonnet. You know, they were, they were straight on it there and the jokes were, were coming out and they were incredibly successful. Um, there was a boom of greeting sites. But of course, now you see, you can buy them, design places like Moonpig and Funky Yeah, Pig. yourself. You can design them yourself and so that you can have what you want. So when did you tap into that, well, A, the ability to kind of feel, I want to talk about this, this is important to me, and B, actually to sit down and actually put it onto paper. When did that first happen and what motivated you at that time? I've no idea. Do you know, I think it was a gradual process where I, I've always written jokes and poems. Ever since I was a kid, I used to collect joke books. Um, and I, I I just think it was it was something that has wiggled its way into my system and, and become part of me that I've always enjoyed humour. And I've always enjoyed, as I say, observational humour. Um, my, my, grand, my grandparents were very funny people with a with a small f lovely lovely funny people um and they would they would laugh my i remember my granddad uh, coming up to my um i had an operation on my nose i had splints in my nose and my grandfather came and i had everybody in stitches talking about adam chance on crossroads this is how far back we're going hurting my nose because i couldn't laugh with these splints but he was great at sort of like talking about 
ordinary things and making them funny. So whether that's a gene that's just been passed down or or just something that I've aped him for, but you know, he was. I've always had humour around me. Um, yeah, my dad was the same actually. Yes. I don't know if it was a generation. Yeah, I can remember really vividly by my dad. He, he he was getting really obsessed with the flies in his kitchen and he was quite old and he'd had a stroke. So and I got him one of those fly swatters and it wasn't working. And I was very excited when I was in the pound shop or wherever. And I found this one that looked like a little tennis racket and it zapped yes. the flies. And I was very excited. I thought, what a brilliant gift. And then the next time I went around to my dad's house, he'd mounted it on the wall with a health and safety warning because he'd, <laughs> he'd zapped himself, basically. <laughs> This thing clearly wasn't, you know, I mean, it wasn't up to up to muster. And every time he'd gone to use it, he'd ended up giving himself a shock. And so he'd put this absolutely hilarious health and safety warning about this fly zapper and like mounted it and put it on the wall. And, you know, when my dad went, it was things like that that I really missed because I, I remembered that, you know, that he could turn something quite ordinary and that somebody might have been annoyed about into something very funny so I think there is an art there so when you started writing books what was your what was your hope then what were you hoping for um rather I I hate myself for this I hate for saying it but I will say when I was younger um I was kind of split down the middle I really wanted to write can't remember a time before I didn't want to write I wanted to write books that made other people feel the way I felt when I read somebody else's books. Um, That was really from a very early age, I wanted to write books. But the other half of me was like, oh, girls like you, you know, coming from council house estates and, and, you know, you you don't get these jobs. You don't get them. Uh, They're for privileged people down in London. So I had this inner kind of um, battle going on with me. And thank goodness the the more ambitious side of me won. Um, But for a a lot of, as I said to you, when when I wanted to write, when I really seriously set off writing, the books that were out there, the ones that were uh, in the market making the, the big noises, what was was the the chick lit phenomenon was the 20 yeah. down in london um they were the ones that were fetching the massive advances and i was from the north um that world meant nothing to me at all and and i tried to ape that world setting my stories in kind of a nondescript place which was neither north nor south um didn't write with a very authentic voice so when the rejection letters came back they came back thick and fast um, and quite rightly so as well, because um, they were rubbish, really. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't write with an authentic voice at all. So it was only when I, when I got my big break, really, was um, well, two things happened to me. One of them was that I was sacked for having a Yorkshire accent by a Yorkshire firm. Uh, (laughs) I'd left a mill and ended up working for a a, a place in Skipton that was quite posh and a bit up itself. And uh, I'd I'd sold a a cabin on a a cruise ship um, for a top price. It was 10,000 quid per person per week. And I'd sold him and his wife. So it was £20,000. Summoned into the office thought I was going to be given a bonus. Um, And in fact, uh, they sacked me and I asked what I'd done. And she said, you haven't done anything. We think your accent is better suited to the textile industry where you came from. 
Wow. No. Slightly short-sighted with the fact that you just sold £20,000 worth of stuff. Matter. They wasn't the sort of person that they wanted in their company, um, uh, which was horribly humiliating at the time. I was only in my 20s. Um, very hard to take. It kind of rocked me right down to the, my inner core. Um, I've, I've always been very good at getting back up if I've been knocked down. And, and I, I promised myself that if I ever did get round to writing a book, I was going to set it, not in any nondescript place. I was going to set it in Yorkshire. I was going to stuff it so full of Yorkshire so this woman ever read it, she would be sick. And it was sheer bloody mindedness why I started to write about Yorkshire, why my books started to, uh, well, they were set now in Yorkshire. But I still couldn't find what I wanted to write about. That was the problem. I was a step closer. And very, very simply, in my late 30s, I got pregnant at the same time as two of my friends. We went through our pregnancy journeys together at the end of it. When the babies were born, they were sitting in my front room and it was like a thunderbolt. It was, why aren't you writing about this? Yorkshire, ordinary women, jobs, friendships, babies. And so I wrote a story about three Yorkshire women. Um, I, I went straight to Barnsley because who who would have thought that a book about Barnsley would really have, have you know, Barry Hines did it way back in the in the 60s, but you know, would it have would it have done anything for me I was past caring at that stage because I was getting rejected left right and center I thought I might as well get rejected for writing about the north and the south sent it off to a publisher that I'd been chasing for 15 years and and he rang me up and he said this is the one I've been waiting for and wow. I, I never I, I had faith in what I was doing I was writing um about um, a place that I knew very well. I was writing about it affectionately. I wasn't slagging it off. People think Barnsley sometimes is a bit of a joke town. We, we get, you know, we get comedians kind of using it as a cheap joke. And I, and I, I painted it as it was in the books. Mm. And through that, the people in my town in Yorkshire kind of lifted me on their shoulders and did the best PR job for me that it is possible for anyone to have. And I never looked back, never looked back at all. And the themes that you write about, I mean, you talk about writing about a point of difference. So what are the other kind of things that you've really, in your mind, got to that point where you thought, I'm going to write about this. What have been the other things? Yeah. Uh, well, the third book was about a skip. Nobody was writing <laughs> skips in Yorkshire. But um, I'd, my marriage had ended and I'd got a skip in my garden and I was throwing, I just moved into a, a new house, um, which was full of the last owner's detritus. And I started filling up the skip. Uh, my mum and dad were filling up the skip with me, throwing all the last person's stuff out of this house so I could make my mark. And I had a, a, a sort of light bulb moment standing out the skip. And I thought there's a book in this about a woman, um, not me, but a woman who is, is clearing out the rubbish in a house. I was inspired to clear out my clutter through reading an article about clear the clutter in a drawer. And mm. um, once you've done a drawer, then the next drawer will look untidy. And before you know where you've done the whole kitchen, you've done the whole downstairs, you move upstairs. It's quite addictive. And I thought, here's a, here's a story about a woman who clears a drawer out and then moves on to her life when her house is done. Realise how much um, rubbish is piled up in her life, how much the, the old her, the, the one that she 
she wanted to be in, at, at this age has been buried under somebody else's rubbish and she needs to break out. So I, I wrote about that. Uh, I wrote when I was on a cruise ship, um, I'd, I'd gone for a, a few cruise holidays uh, with me and the kids. And every time I, I went on, it was like I would see the same people, but in different different bodies, the same things they said, and thought, there's a book in this, writing about people on a cruise ship. So I did that. Um, Cross-generational friendships. I worked in a place when I lived in Haworth where I was friends with a, in my 20s with a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old, and a 70-year-old. We all had the same man problems. Um, we um, it, it taught me how much friendship batters down any divisions of age and class and, and background. There were no books out there that I could find that were about cross-generational friendship. So I started to write one. Mm. So in, I, I always turn to my own life. And it's it's the same with this, the woman in the middle. I haven't seen any out there that, that deal with a woman trapped in the middle of fledgling adults and aging parents. And so I thought... If I'm thinking this, and I know I'm very typical of a lot of women, of, of most women, I think, out there, then there is there is a um, there is a chance for me to write this book and it free to be very very relatable to to thousands and thousands of other women. Um, I want to come back to that in a minute. I mean, first of all, because I'm really annoyed I didn't think of it myself. <laughs> Because as you know, I was actually doing quite a lot of work into the the, the woman in the middle and the squeezed middle. Uh, the one about the clutter, particularly. I mean, it, it literally sounded like one of my therapy sessions, you know. Because in my therapy and coaching, um, I've drawn on the work of well, there's a woman called Marie Kondo. I don't know if you've come across her, but I think it's called um, the Joy of Tidying Up or something like that. But she's really she's really hardcore, you know. She she I have to say, I fell out with her at the point where she says something like, you shouldn't have more than 30 books. I'm like, no, that is not. That's a furniture to people, aren't they? Yeah. Books are furniture. I'm like, no, not negotiable. But but that decluttering, I mean, both physically and metaphorically in your life, it's like a really powerful therapeutic um, action. So I would imagine there must be people who reach out to you, who read your books, who probably tell you that you've changed their lives. Is that true? Especially after that one. Um, yeah. People said this book should come with a packet of bin liners because when I was I, when I was writing the book, I filled it with every bit of the process that I'd gone through for decluttering. So it was almost like a, a, a self help guide. Yeah. To and I've had so many people write to me and said I've. I've I've cleared the clutter out of my life. I've changed it. Um, and I became quite a cluttery expert. I, I do actually give lectures about decluttering your house um, because I loved it. I mean, I, I, who would have thought how good you would feel just for moving some clutter out of your house? But you do. It revolutionises your life. It, it really does reduce stress, the fact that things are in places, that you haven't got 30 million uh, safe places in the house. Oh, I am on that page. You know? I am on if you know it's in a safe place, it only can be in one place, and that is the safe place in your house. Not oh, where did I put that? Was it that safe place? Was it that safe place? You know, and and it's just getting a little bit of organisation in your life. And and we've just done a massive declutter um, because I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a a hoarder where stationery is concerned and office things. Yeah. I covet them and I buy them and never use them. And I thought I need, I, you know, I've got the, a lovely new office now and I, I need to get rid of all the stuff that I'm not going to use. 
And I have. I've got actually rid of quite a lot of books that I will never read again. And I, I feel it's a bit cruel sometimes to keep them. If I'm not going to read them again, I might as well give them kind to the let them go. Of the world and let them. Because, But I, I keep the ones, I, I have plenty of books. I have loads of books, but I keep the books that are useful, that I want to read again. And so that everything in my house should have a use or be beautiful. You know, I'm not quite at minimalistic stages yet, but you know, you, no. you get there. I'm I'm a lot better than I used to be. I, I Me too. Like I'm, I'm not zen. I'm not like you know, two plates and two forks and two knives. No, but I'm definitely. Um, we've had quite a few skips here to the house that I moved in with my partner. The first one came within about a week of me arriving. So there we go. The woman in the middle, tell us about really what uh, your aha moment with her and what made you write about her. I Oh, the the, uh, the influences for this one um, were always come from a very strange place, never where you think they're going to come from. So I had a story in my head about a woman who has two children and uh, an, an aging mum. And uh, and I so that was my my basis of, of the story, but wasn't quite sure how it would all knit together. Um, my my children are well, I said children, they're men, but they're young fledgling adults. Um, and you you do you it's it's that when do you let go thing? Yeah. Uh, um, I, you can see them making mistakes, and you try to uh, advise them and tell them and worry about them. But it's only by doing it and making their own mistakes that you will that they will polish. They will become polished. And, and shine like the, the diamonds they should be. Um, but you've got that whole mum thing with the apron strings pulling. So that was quite, um, in, I wanted to sort of write about that. Uh, a parent who also becomes the child, um, my mum is nearly 90, and, and seeing me telling her to eat more fruit, should be doing this, telling her <laughs> the way that she should be. And, and it, it was, there were certain moments that, that actually just seemed very, I don't know, poignant where there was one day I was washing my mum's hair and realising just how fragile her head was. These mm. little things all add to markers. But the real one, the one thing that happened with my mum is that the, the planning laws in this country are a disgrace. Uh, they decided to open up everything. So anything that's written in your deeds about this should only be a garage, you can forget that now. They've they've said Englishman's home should be his castle, blah, blah. You can build two stories onto your house if you want. Never mind what your neighbours might think. And, and so there will be a climate in a, in a couple of years of these atrocities that are being built. Mm. And, and neighbour wars, they've already started. And quite simply, my mum's, we had a, a problem with my mum's neighbour who was um, turning their garage next door um, into um, into a, a living accommodation. So effectively, it was turning my mum's house into a semi-detached house when, rather yeah. than a LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah, living accommodation right next to hers, yeah. And this was really stressing her out because things, when, when you, you know, you've got aged parents, they will fixate on something. And the stress that that was causing, and I thought there's a story here. There's a story um, about a, a skip was on the drive next door. And I thought, what if this name on the skip triggers off something in the old lady's brain, something that is buried, something that is she's never told anybody, but it's all starting to come to the surface. 
Mm. That was my starting point for the story, that this this woman who is looking after uh, and not looking after herself, you know, she hasn't got time to make an appointment if she needs a doctor's appointment herself, but she would make an appointment for a mum or she would make an appointment for her sons. Yeah. Um, and what if what if this happened where this woman um, was was buried under the responsibilities that she that she feels buried? It's a love mm. duty, but she is forgetting herself in the equation. And something happens to her where she is forced to put herself first. Because I do like to take my readers right down to the, the bottom of the of the well, um, because I, I, I know that they like to see someone bursting out and become back, yeah. you know, back up. They like stories of, of people who find themselves. Because I think a lot of people out there are, aren't on the, the, the tracks that they think imagined they would be and they see templates in my books they see templates to follow and indeed have followed they write to me and say I've I've followed the path of the character in your book because she's so relatable and I've Mm -hmm. done it I've left my husband I've 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 got a new job I've done this I've set up my own business um and with this one there's a lot that happens to this woman um but that is life you know I make no excuses for that at all life does not say oh you've had enough now no, trust me. that's it why my book's called reset it doesn't stop does it life will no. life will see you lying on the floor and it will not feel sorry for you. It will just put another pair of boots on and start kicking you. But and this is what happens to this woman. She is she is is just brought to such uh, a stage where she is enough. I need to look after myself. And it rather nicely it rather nicely fell into to three bits where she's falling, where she's at rock bottom with still yeah, and then when she she's rising, and uh, and and that's that's where it came from. Quite simply, planning laws, family, and <laughs> skip on next door's drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can imagine it's so relatable for people. I mean, you know, a lot of the therapy I do. I mean, I get a lot of the women in the middle. I really do. Who. Um, and I know you've been reading my book and there's a bit in there about The Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts, that movie where there's a scene in The Runaway Bride because she's always running from the altar because she's running from life always. And she's a people pleaser. She's the archetypal people pleaser. And she goes to this cafe with um, Richard Gere in the movie, who's playing the journalist, and they order eggs and she's like, I want scrambled. No, no, that's how Nick liked them. I want poached. Oh, no, that's how so-and-so wanted them. And she has almost a breakdown at the moment when she realises she doesn't know how she wants her eggs, which might sound incredibly trivial, but basically what it means is she's never put herself first. She's never allowed herself to even go, actually, well done you for having a boiled egg. I'm going to go off and have a poached egg, you know. Um, This massive people-pleasing, and, of course, women tend to do that a lot and then women in the middle they're trying to please more people aren't they they're trying to please or take care of their kids their grandkids maybe their parents their marriage their work everything and the the thing that goes is them and so I think what your book must do is in a beautiful way allow them to see a glimpse of what's on the other side because I think it's fear that keeps people stuck so I'm not at all surprised that women write to you and go I read your book and I left my marriage you know not that that's what you're setting out to do but I think it allows them that glimpse doesn't it of 
life beyond the stuckness. Yes. A lot of people in, in, uh, in their lives don't realise how much their goalposts have shifted from normal. Yes. They read my books and they think, hang on a minute, that bloke is treating that woman like crap. But that's the way that my other half treats me. And they don't realise that they're actually in abusive relationships until they're reading it in a book. Mm. That's happened to me. And it's it's very sad. But yeah. I, I know myself how um, how your goalposts can change and, and shift almost imperceptibly. So you don't even know that your life, if, if any person looking in on your life um, was not going to see it as normal because you think, well, this is what everybody does. And it, it's not. Um, and it, it's very sad that, um, th- but also quite liberating for them that they have got to that point where they think, actually, I'm going to do something about it. Um, Just yeah. knowing the effect that this have on people feel like a massive responsibility to you at times. It, it can do because it's not what we set off to do. We set off to write stories. <laughs> Uh, that are relatable that people enjoy and then and then you realize that you know with great power comes great responsibility um we I, we can't we don't lecture we don't we don't preach we have to just write the stories that we do and if people take something from that that is positive then it, it is is a it's a bonus if you like but it's not what we set out to do if a book is written to be preachy it comes across as being yeah. preachy and it and I, I don't want to do that and you you do but you do worry you do think sometimes if this story what if somebody takes this to heart but you you can't prepare for every eventuality all you can do is is write the truest story that you can um and and a story that um you hope will be um, just enjoyed by people. But as I say, if it has got lessons there to guide, then the, the people take them yeah. and, and use them. And are you now on your next book or are you like, have you got like an antenna like Crystal Palace now? Are you kind of, how, how does it work? Have you already got like a little black book with all those thoughts and observations or well, what's the process for next steps? The next, the next step, well, um, it starts queuing up in my brain before the other one is finished. It stands there going, me, it's my turn, it's my turn. And you, you have to push it to the back because you know it's there. It starts to knit. I, I've never really been able to work out. I've never really been able to be, to define what happens in my brain because every, we, all our brains obviously work very different. All I can tell you is that my brain, once I have an idea, it starts to knit. It's like candy floss. It's like putting a stick in the machine. Mm. Things start to weave around it. And I start picking things out of the air and think, that would work. Oh, that would work. That would work. And it all piles up and I start writing it. Um, I don't plan my books. No, I remember you saying that. You don't kind of have this massive... No, I don't don't have the structure set in place. I just... I'm just chaos personified and start writing. But people say to me, I'd love to write a book, but I don't know how to start or where to go. And I, my, my stock answer is, I don't. You mm. just have to write and see where it takes you. You find your yeah. own system of writing. Um, but, I, but I have got a few pointers on the way now. And, and as, soon as, as soon as one book is finished, um, I will start the next. I'll have a bit of a break. Obviously, there'll be a lot of PR and marketing, et cetera, to do with the book that you've just brought out there you're in the middle of now yeah Yeah. but it's spinning in the background um and i i can just go straight to on quiet days 
um, then I will. I'll, obviously, there's a, a couple of weeks when this one's come out where it's just full on interviews and magazine articles, etc. Um, but as soon as that period is out of the way, then I'm, I'm straight on the next one, except that with this one, this period, I've got um, about a week and then the paperback of last year's Christmas book comes out. So I'm straight. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you've got that coming, haven't you? Really. Yeah. But I, I know where I'm going with it, I think. Um, it's I, I, know, I know the basic premise and that is all I ever kind of know when I start a book and it stood me in good stead for, for 19 books. So I'm just hoping and praying that my anarchic system will work again for book 20. And we talked um, at the book festival about them being made into movies because I don't think any of yours have. You you got close once, I think, but it hasn't yeah. actually happened. Would yeah. you still like that to happen? I think we all would. I think <laughs> we all would. I mean, you, you have to be um, be very aware uh, because I've seen it happen with other people though have had film deals that once it leaves your hands and goes into the film industry um it will be reworked it will not be your um your baby in its entirety anymore um it, they have to cut bits out they might have to change characters etc but we'd still love it we'd certainly love the money if it was yeah. made into a hollywood film yeah. um but i just love to see it it gets you in front of a whole new audience then so you know i'm if steven spielberg is watching this i'm open to all yes steven or any anybody similar richard curtis maybe he's pretty he's pretty good isn't he with those romantic (laughs) I'm going to a love actually pajama party just before Christmas yeah at the kinema which is the most amazing cinema ever so I'll have to send you a link to it oh that will that'd be lovely I love that I love I love love actually I love all those films and uh, yes they're great they're great fun so two questions one is what's a question I haven't asked you that you'd like to ask yourself um, I, I, the, the one question that, uh, that I, I think might be useful if anybody's listening in, um, which I, if somebody had said this to me a few years ago, maybe the answer would be different, was, you know, is any dream too high? Um, I, I can probably say at this point that no, it isn't. I think if you have a realistic dream, i.e., that if it was me now dreaming of being a Vogue model, I think that the chances are very low. Um, but if it's an attainable dream, like me being a novelist, etc., and mm. you see yourself doing it, um, I wrote one book called The Queen of Wishful Thinking, and, and basic the basic premise was if you can imagine yourself doing it and it's attainable, then you should absolutely go for it. Um, and I, I would like to say that people have all these dreams and they save them. Oh, I'm going to write a book when I retire. Oh, I'd love a pink bead. You know, however, you know, your your dreams are tailor-made for you. My dream, my worst nightmare, in fact, of a dream would be to climb Everest. I don't want that at all. Um, I would like to see my film, uh, my book on on a film. And that is attainable if someone, you know, if you get in front of enough people. So it's attainable. And I I think that there are so many people here who have these dreams or or put them off. The fear holds them back from doing it. And you should absolutely go for it. You know, now, especially after the year and a half that we've had, if you've always wanted to go to Barbados and you've got the money in your bank, just book it. Damn holiday, you know. I agree. Buy the bathroom. Buy the get rid of your old bed and get a water bed. You, we should be doing this. We should be going for our dreams now while we we can have them. 
don't save them. Don't put them on a shrine, you know, have them now. So it was just that. It was just that. Is any dream too high? A few years ago, as I say, when a kid, if somebody would have said, do you ever think you'll be a novelist? I think I would have probably said, no, I think it's a dream. It's not going to happen, blah, blah. And I was very, very wrong. I was a poster girl for what can happen if you really put your mind to it. Well, as you know, that's where I'm going next. So thank you for that pep talk. It was all taken on board. (laughs) And the last question is, would there be a question that you'd really hate to be asked? And what would that be? Um, No, and I I don't think there is because I'm not a sort of person who will shy away from, um, from questions. Everything that has happened to me in my life um, has, has brought me to this place. You know, when you get those questions that you say, what would you tell, what would you beware of your, you tell your 16 year old self not to do, it might change the course of history. The only thing I would tell mine was just, just have less Baileys and have more water. That's the only thing because everything that, that has happened to me, all the rotten stuff has brought me to this point in my life where I'm, I'm really quite happy um, and, and has given me everything that I want. All the hard times have given me this. I've, I've triumphed through all the, the, the rotten things that I've had. So I've, I've never been frightened of, of questions that mm. might poke into the dark holes uh, of my life because I haven't really done anything that bad. Um, that I would, you know, I haven't robbed a bank or or anything like that. So, no, I'm quite an open book. And and I think people are quite interested in in, in the dark side that's happened to you as well as the light side. Oh, absolutely. Since I've started sharing mine, it's changed my whole life. So, you know, from that PR background, I think I was prone to put a bit of a gloss on it in the back, you know, in years gone by. But I'm not there anymore. Millie Johnson, you have been a star. Where can people buy your latest book, Woman in the Middle, and all your other books and read your blogs, etc.? Um, yeah, I've got a website, which has usually got all the information on it, milliejohnson.co.uk. That's Millie with a Y. Um, my books are available in, in Morrison's in Asda, signed copies in Sainsbury, um, in, in Tesco. We have a, a local bookshop in our uh, town centre at the Book Vault or 7, which um, has social media links across your um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they can get signed copies from there if they want. Bookshop, all good bookshops, we say. It's not a good bookshop, but it has got my book in it. But I'm, I'm uh, and of course, Amazon, you know, the, the giant that is Amazon. You can you can find me everywhere. All my books are still in print. They're on Audible, they're in ebook, you know, the, I'm, I'm all over the place. So um, I'm quite easy to find. Well, I'm glad you're all over the place because I think the world is a better place for it. So thank you so much, Millie Johnson. My guest today has been Millie Johnson, beyond best-selling novelist. Uh, I think best-selling life changer for all the people who want their lives changing. So I'm Rosalind Palmer. You've been listening to Monkey Business and I'm actually just flipping over. (laughs) And thank you very much and join me next time.